0: Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world for the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we're going to be talking about the world after Paris or at least the world after America's decision to leave the Paris Climate Change Agreement. It is now four days since Donald Trump announced his fateful decision And many of the fears that people had of the crumbling of the liberal international order, the end of the multilateral system and a return to a world of power politics seem to be brought to life and crystallized by this single decision. And in this podcast, we're going to look at how much it matters, what it means for that liberal international order what it means for the strategies adopted by other great powers, what the European Union can do about it, and to help work our way through these big questions. We have two experts, one of whom is ECFR's resident voice of Donald Trump or at least the, the closest that we have uh, to his emanuensis uh, in in London which is uh, Jeremy Shapiro
1: can I ask for a new
0: job <laughs> <laughs> who is research director and a senior policy fellow at ECFR and we're also joined by Manuel lafon who's back to the podcast again this time not to talk about French domestic politics but to talk about the future of the international system as seen from paris where this treaty was signed and where the world climate scientists have now been offered refuge by the french president in a statement which he made a few hours after donald trump's fateful announcement and i think there's maybe a, a, a prior question which is is this agreement particularly worth saving anyway i remember uh, couple of decades ago when people were talking about the Kyoto Protocol and Europeans were really excited about that because they had distilled the essence of the DNA of the European system and applied it to planetary politics. So they came up with a system which was basically about pooling sovereignty, interfering in countries' internal affairs, having legally binding commitments and uh, doing it according to quite objective criteria which were universal. Whereas it's pretty different from the from the Paris deal, which uh, looked more like a, a, a kind of voluntary thing where everyone would do whatever they wanted to do and they kind of showed up and put it all into a single deal, but nothing was binding. There was no sort of common benchmarks and, uh, you know, there were no consequences whether countries um, do what they say they're going to do or not.
1: Yeah, I think that, um, you know, there was one thing that Donald Trump said about this agreement, which uh, I agreed with and which was, I think, important to note because the first time I've ever agreed with him, uh, which is that, it's a, that the, the agreement has become a bit of religion for a lot of its supporters. And that there, it's become that the idea of supporting Paris, supporting the Paris Accords, has become more important than actually the problem of climate change, which is actually a distinct goal. Uh, you know, the, the weird thing about this agreement is that it's not very impressive. Uh, it doesn't really do that much to address the climate change problem. It's all we have, and so I think I can understand why people are attached to it, but I wonder whether it is worth having this huge fight with the United States over a, an agreement which isn't actually all that uh, impressive. You know, a weird thing happened when the United States withdrew from the Kyoto Agreement, which was that, uh, in fact, it was the United States which ended up making a lot of its, a lot of the, um, the carbon targets that were in that agreement, and and a lot of other countries did not end up doing. And it wasn't because, of course, the United States was more committed, to, uh, cl- to, pr- to combating climate change than Europe or any other country. It was because, of the, f- of the discovery of. Uh, of a lot of natural gas in the United States which shifted the, fu- the the fuel mix toward natural gas away from coal in the United States which created a huge reduction in carbon emissions in the United States and I think that highlights the fact that actually it, it's, it's very rarely been these international agreements uh, that do these things and we should be maybe a little bit more focused on the market mechanisms to reduce carbon footprints So do you agree with that, Manuel? Well, I agree
0: with the
2: fact that uh, this shouldn't become a religion and be more important than uh, than fighting climate change. So itself, French
0: definitely. lazy deer still is still it survives. It's just
2: it, it seems to me that it is uh, Trump who made a religion of opposing something that other people agreed with, and therefore he decided that he shouldn't agree with it because then it meant that it wouldn't be in the U.S. interest. Um, there was there was a very striking lack of argument in his nonetheless quite long statements on justifying the religion. And I suspect that, of course, you can rely on new energy like shell gas or new technologies or local actions by corporations or local governments. But we know this is not enough to reach the, the kind of goals in terms of emissions that, that we need to reach if we want to stabilize uh, climate change. So I'm I'm all in favor of going the way that Jeremy uh, is indicating and and making more interest on markets uh, and uh, and more kind of micro-action. And actually, this is exactly what the Paris Agreement has been doing. It's not about centralized policy. It's about national policies coordination. And that's, that's a big criticism which was made against the Paris Agreement. It's not the kind of as you said earlier with the Kyoto Protocol, very heavy international uh, uh, active collective action. It's much more light and decentralized than that. But do, that's, that's a good thing about it.
0: Well, I, except, I mean, in a way, so those are two separate critiques of it. So there's Jeremy's critique, which you've ruled out. I kind of tend to uh, agree with you that those things are unlikely to work very much. And that, you know, we have obviously seen collective action worked very well on some other environmental problems like the hole in the ozone layer the ban on CFCs seemed to be very effective a real example of the world actually acting early and, and yeah turning but we've around. been
1: we've been doing this for 20 years on on uh, on carbon emissions and it's not working yeah. i think it's a much more difficult problem than so that.
0: if it's not working what about my critique which i kind of laid out manuel you know that this was so flawed because it was not legally binding and Um, there might be no consequences. You know, where the countries stay in it or leave it, it's not going to have any effect on what they actually do. Well,
2: it's funny because um, in the same statement, Donald Trump both says this is a non-binding agreement, and yet that it is a tremendous constraint on the US economy and the US sovereignty. So one thing or the other, but not both. I I agree that this is not one of those treaties where you have... uh, very strong firm execution mechanism you don't have penalties you don't have sanctions you don't have kind of an international court but that's the case for most uh, of international law most of international law is binding if states make it so so it's about political will as much as about uh, international legal mechanism and that's a traditional problem which is even more important in the case of the US because the US only rarely ratifies treaty but what is important is the will of the federal government to implement the kind of policy that is there. And what we have with Trump is not just a rejection of the treaty, but a rejection of the policies that are underlying the treaty and the policy goals that uh, have justified the negotiation that led to the treaty. And what is done internally on the domestic stage in terms of new regulations, in terms of underfunding the uh, uh, environmental uh, bodies, in terms of underfunding and uh, the, the scientific uh, research on those issues and also in terms of cutting funds for foreign assistance on those topics is as much of a problem as the withdrawal from the, the agreement itself
0: but maybe we should take those things separately because i think you know obviously the us is the second biggest emitter so it does matter a lot
1: but yeah, no i don't think we should take those things separately because i would actually argue that they are related That uh, part of the problem that we're having is that uh, in the United States is that it's seen as an international imposition, that this that the that the question of climate change has been has been wrapped up in these very stupid questions about sovereignty. And it's become uh, an issue of uh, of America first, of America independence, of American independence, which is a ridiculous place to have an argument about environmental debates. And I think that what that indicates is that the, uh, the sort of agenda that we have, the, the plan that we have for dealing with climate change, which is to have big international conferences where nations agree to things which actually don't matter that much, but which create a lot of political conflict and which create a lot of sense, not just in the United States, but in a lot of countries uh, that there are, that, that, that this is a sovereignty infringing uh, process is is maybe the problem. And what we should, and it actually, intriguingly, in the United States, we would be further along in reducing carbon emissions if we had never engaged in these in these two rounds of uh, incredibly complicated, incredibly controversial carbon emission negotiations. Well, how,
0: how does that follow from what you said earlier? I mean, it looks like without, you know, the, the, having taken part, isn't that a complete non sequitur? I mean, on the one hand, there have been all sorts of technological innovations, which you described earlier, the discovery of, of, of fracking and ways of, of, yeah. of changing the energy supply. I mean, in what way have those been well, held it, back by... by well, they haven't been held back, but what I mean programs? is that
1: the domestic politics of climate change has been infected by these international negotiation processes in the United States. But in and a it's positive
0: be- way, like states like California, which are very big, have signed up to fix no, And they're that, like one of the, big, they're it, the sixth or seventh biggest economy in the world. So
1: well, kind of I think it or- has, it has had the, the beneficial effect that it's created this polarization and that certain states or even further along because of it. But I would argue that it's because of the international consequences, because of the international effects. It is, this is something that has really strongly divided the Republicans and Democrats. And the, the domestic politics of this wouldn't be as sharp if we didn't have these sort of crystallization moments on the international stage. And I'm wondering if it's worth it when you look at what the Paris Accord actually does. Why is it but that Donald Trump, Trump, Trump is even commenting on world. this?
2: Maybe it is worth it for the rest of the world. There is crystallization, Possibly. but in the rest of the world, that crystallization has played positively. Not, not only uh, was the Paris Agreement a moment when in the international, the, the states, the, the group of uh, states, but also non state actors, again, local governments, unions, corporations, foundations, moved together, and they did try to coordinate themselves. And coordination is key when you're doing things on environment, which have an impact on trade, which have an impact on economy, which have an impact on foreign assistance, etc., etc. So you can't have that just by people leading their own national policies and hoping that they all fit well together. Second, maybe this Paris Agreement was not enough, but precisely it's meant to be a first step and to be reassessed regularly. And and on top of that, it's been since then a basis for a lot of, Domestic impetus, whether in Europe, in some countries, most countries, or elsewhere, in China, in India, and also for additional international initiatives on solar energy, on uh, wind energy, and on many other topics like forests, uh, for instance. So,
0: Manuel, can you explain? Can you explain um, for listeners who are less familiar with the details than you what the pathway is from Paris and the Paris Agreement? to changes in domestic policy in some of these other countries, in China, in developing countries. I mean, are there particular mechanisms that you think uh, have, have led to a causal link in terms of the, the emissions in those countries? Or
2: So the, the way the agreement is built is that uh, with, with compared to previous efforts uh, in that direction, it's not one centralised uh, goal, targets in terms of emission, and then you have a kind of distributive conflict uh, where everybody wants to do less than the others. But it was built uh, bottom-up, where you have what are called uh, INDCs, Intended Nationally Determined Contributions. So each country does its own climate plan and determines how much of a contribution it will do to reduce uh, the, the global warming uh, and its consequences, and how it goes to there, and the addition of that makes the global effort. And obviously, there's a game of adjustment with compared to what the others are doing. So these nationally determined contributions have to eventually be adapted to the global goal of reduction of emissions, which is the target that the scientific come with. And and there's a gap between the two. Therefore, you have a mechanism to review every five years to set more ambitious targets as as required by science depending on the outcome of these national policies and you also have a kind of a peer pressure mechanism because the implementation of these national plans are under uh, some kind of transparency mechanism where you see what everybody is doing and both the Chinese and the Indians for instance have invested a lot in either electri- electrifying transport or shifting from coal plants to uh, wind or solar energy, for instance. And, and you can see some figures w- from the, the, since, since the Paris Agreement was signed. But yes, there is indeed some impetus, some momentum that is there that wasn't there before.
0: And is it going to go now that America's leaving the treaty? Well, right now, everybody has said, cool, um, the, whatever
2: does the U.S., we hope that the, the, the U.S. actors like local governments or corporations will keep the course. We hope that some president after Trump will shift back to a more cooperative attitude. But for the moment, we don't want to reopen the treaty and we want to implement it. But obviously, the fact that the U.S. are not there are going to change the politics of it. And it's also going to have impact on one importance. Uh, tool that was devised by not by the Paris Agreement actually was there before but w- which is important for the implementation of the Paris Agreement which is the Green Climate Fund uh, and the US was uh, one of the most important donors to the fund unless um, except that unlike what Donald Trump said it wasn't billions and billions and billions of dollars <laughs> it was 3 billion pledged only 1 billion dispersed so far but that's nonetheless still uh, the, the biggest contribution by one country. Isn't it? Like the
0: literally, literally
2: billions, billions. One <laughs> <countries>. <laughs> and billions. And so this is one example of where the US contribution uh, could have been helping to keep this momentum and where the US withdrawal could actually have a kind of a, a gripping effect on, on that kind of uh, cooperation and positive dynamic.
0: OK, so we have mixed views on like whether it's going to have a big or or not big impact on the on the climate but it certainly had an an impact on the way the US is seen and in a way it echoes partly what happened after Condi Rice said at lunch at the Swedish embassy that Kyoto was dead which um I think a lot of people might have uh Thought beforehand, but when she said it, it changed the way that Europeans looked at uh, George Bush and at the US. And it went from being uh, seen as part of the the solution to global problems to being the global problem <laughs> in the eyes of many European capitals. And now we're back. So, do you want to, Jeremy, think a bit about what this means for for the kind of uh, global order, American power? You know, obviously. The Chinese yet again were quite quick to come out and um, show that they were going to be responsible stakeholders, and that's a now well-worn path by Xi Jinping.
1: Yeah, I think when it, when it comes to this aspect of it, I think I very much agree with with Manuel that it's a um, that regardless of the effect on the climate, and on the and on the CO two emissions, that this withdrawal is a diplomatic disaster for the United States and one which really uh, is completely unnecessary. Uh, it has very because actually it has very little impact. the the, the paris the Paris Accord in, in general had very little impact on the United States and wasn't actually so important as to be worth this kind of diplomatic damage. It, I think it demonstrates a couple of things. First of all, it demonstrates uh, that the United States under Donald Trump is going to be very isolated on a lot of these issues. It's not just isolated. From the sort of Namby-Pamby Europeans that Trump likes to criticize, it's also it's also going to be isolated from countries like like China and India, which are uh, work which are working much more constructively, even if they are even if in the end they're not actually going to do that much. Which is of course the usual game of international politics. It is that you know you can you can take advantage of hypocrisy, and and Donald Trump has decided not to do that, and that's going to be to America's diplomatic. Uh, disadvantage. Um, I think the, the other aspect of it, which is it demonstrates something that I think is probably pretty important for Europeans and others to understand, which is that you're not going to get out of uh, a, a, a United States under Donald Trump presidency, a, a foreign policy that is controlled by the so-called adults in the room that's controlled by the more reasonable members of his cabinet. In fact, there was tremendous pressure from all sorts of interest groups and and from some very close advisors, including from Ivanka Trump, but also from um, most of his major cabinet members, including um, Rex Tillerson, not to do this. But Donald Trump will be Donald Trump in the end of the day. And at the end of the day, you get a foreign policy that is run by the president of the United States. There is no foreign policy that the United States can create that that can ignore him, which seemed to be the, the direction that we were heading. And he he is very, very focused on his base. Nobody else but them wanted this. Uh, and he, he delivered it to them as he promised. And I think that that's a harbinger of the type of foreign policy he's likely to run over the next few years. So Menard,
0: what do you think The
1: implications are for Europe, because, you know, a lot of people watched
0: the short video of Emmanuel Macron responding to, in fact, apparently, according to Ulrike Franco, the researcher for this podcast, it's the most tweeted French, the most tweeted French tweet of all times, was the video where he criticized the decision, offered refuge to Ironically, it was in English. Indeed, it was in English. I think it might be one of the reasons why it was the, the most tweeted French tweet <laughs> um, in history. But anyway, um, he... And suggested he, to make our planet great again. Exactly. Um, so we know what, that it was a, a, a public diplomacy moment. But in terms of power and politics, what does what does Europe do next?
2: Well, one one thing which is important to continue what Jeremy was just saying is that um, right, right after Trump's trip to Europe and the Middle East, you had this piece in the Wall Street Journal by the uh, National Security Advisor and the and the Economic Advisor to the President to the White House, saying America first doesn't mean America alone, and trying to lay out some kind of doctrine on international affairs, which makes sense of the very uh, nationalist uh, uh, agenda of Donald Trump, and yet. Uh, trying to make a case that that was not contradictory with strong alliances and international cooperation, and I think that what happened on on the Paris Agreement has a broader implication. And yes, it, there is something in America First that can mean America alone. Uh, maybe it's America alone on its own decision uh, because it goes out of a uh, uh, on the on the rest quite universal treaty. But it also says something stronger. Um, I think in that piece, uh, they say that when the president left uh, for the Freud's trip, he, he had clearly in mind that there was no such thing as a global community and that the world was only an arena where nations compete. Uh, and basically, that is kind of zero-sum game, very competitive vision of, of the world, where there is little space for international cooperation because there's little space for uh, common interest um, one of the very striking things in his statements on on uh, the climate is that he spoke about trade much more than he spoke about climate or environment and basically laid out a vision where police international cooperation is only a pretext for others to create edges against the US and constraints over the US so that is a kind of a, a justification of what Angela Merkel said after the G7, but before this statement, and probably she had in mind the likelihood of Trump's decision on climate. Yeah. There are things that the Europeans will have to take care uh, uh, by themselves or with others, for instance, on climate with China, with India, with uh, the, the other oil producer uh, countries, with... Uh, Um, dynamic uh, economies like Japan or uh, South Korea or whatever, but that there will be some kind of vacuum created by this new, uh, at best, unpredictable, at worst, pretty predictable uh, US policy, and that there are consequences that come with that. And, And the strength of the reaction on that Donald Trump statement are a demonstration that climate policy is not not more kind of a soft topic on, on the margins of international politics it's what- a centerpiece of world politics and that's including on those kind of issues where Europe needs to be able to show some leadership. It may be collective leadership with others but there's some leadership le- needed and that takes uh, uh, partnerships uh, with uh, again other Major powers or emerging powers. That takes also foreign assistance and international assistance. That also takes uh, economic prosperity and innovation. And again, I I agree with what Jeremy said on these kind of issues earlier. And that also takes an ability to mobilize beyond the state-to-state relation. And maybe that is why this tweet, this video by uh, President Macron, had this kind of impact because. This idea that you can jump over the governments and talk to other kind of actors because they actually are relevant to the international policy that you're trying to set up is something which I believe is, it resonates these days very much.
0: So Jeremy, if you were sitting in the White House or, um, you know, your lost vocation um, or in one of the other organs of American power, what would you be most worried about from Europe at the moment? No. What I'd be most worried
1: about would be indictment, but um, <laughs>
0: it's not in necessarily terms of Europe, within I, the power of Europeans, the whole the process. <laughs> uh,
1: yeah. Um, look, I mean, I think that uh, it is very difficult in Washington to scare the Americans with European reactions because, uh, in fact, the Europeans uh, have adapted a sort of uh, such a long-standing policy of sort of uh slavish devotion to the american system that their threats really aren't very um aren't very credible you know i think the fresh the french are partial exception to this of course they have long had a sort of a, th- a theory of independence which has been verified but uh everybody else is pretty new uh and you know what merkel said was quite interesting and quite important but you know i developed a rule when i was at the state department that um Whenever the Germans told you that something was impossible, nine months later it would happen. Uh, that they were always coming up and saying this will destroy the relationship, and then always compromising and conceding to the United States. I would like to think, frankly, that this time will be different. That this is more serious. That Merkel um, really means what she says, and that this has been a ch- uh, that this has been a sort of sea change in the German relationship. With the United States, but I but I have to admit that I think it's very difficult for even career, uh, non-political American officials to really believe that. I think it's going some of the consequences are going to have to be seen. And when you get beyond Germany and France, I think the situation is significantly worse. You know, we did uh, a lot of surveys um, recently uh, about European reactions to Trump, and overwhelmingly. Uh, Outside of France, the view was, you know, it's going to be okay. We don't have to change. Uh, We need the United States for security, either from counterterrorism or from Russia. And uh, we will create a relationship with Donald Trump's America that can work. Don't worry about it. Uh, I think France was an exception to that. And Germany was a tiny bit of an exception to that and is obviously becoming more so. But in the other uh, 26 so far, 25 soon, uh, European Union countries, they didn't feel that way. Uh, and I'm not sure that there are that many countries willing to follow Germany and France down this road, as of yet, at least.
0: So Emmanuel, maybe... That,
2: yes, I, I just want to add, actually, it's, it's still, even, even from the French, it's partly true that yeah. we need the US. We need the US on security. What France is doing in the cell wouldn't happen with US support, for instance. So for all the independence that uh, France is able to cherish, there still is an, an important uh, um, assistance that can come from the U.S., and when it comes, it's very much welcome, and when it doesn't come, it's, it's a lot of a problem. I think p- part of the conclusion from that point is that the most uh, difficult thing for the transatlantic relation is that it's going to be hard to find a positive agenda for that relation. We know where we disagree, and that can be a problem, but it doesn't have to be. We can also find ways for it to, to avoid those problems. On some points, there will be tensions, and there are already, and we need to be able to manage them. But this, we will be in a much better position to do it if we on other topics, have a kind of positive agenda. And where the positive agenda will be, it's getting more and more difficult day after day to see uh, where. Yeah. Um, and, and it's not like China or India or Brazil or whatever are going to be alternatives. And I'm not even mentioning Russia, obviously. So we, we need to find some ways to do damage control and mitigate the consequences of, of the U.S., uh, uh, current policies, but that will work only up to a point. And in terms of the international order, because that's what you mentioned, Mark, that opens the way for a lot of instability, uh, a lot of not just unpredictability, but a lot of vacuum where you don't know uh, what can come from it uh, in terms of either security or just ability to um, keep some control of, of problem like not just global change, but also uh, food security, energy security, global health, etc, etc.
0: Okay, well, let's hope that we will find a way through all of these things. Those are big topics. I'm sure will make up many, many hours of World in 30 Minutes podcasts in <laughs> the future. And we will also see in the weeks ahead, whether or not Emmanuel Macron and Angela Merkel and the other people who are working with them are able to make the planet great again or at least to make Europe great again in the service of the planet
1: or for the first time
0: (laughs) well that's that's another topic which we can return to in our podcast but before we do that we have one last thing to do on this podcast which is our bookshelf segment Manuel it's been a long weekend in in Paris um have you been reading anything interesting
2: there was something that I read which is relevant for our conversation today, but I read that uh, when it was out. Actually, it's our colleague Francois Godemont's policy brief from March, which is entitled Expanded Ambitions, Shrinking Achievements: How China Sees the Global Order. We mentioned that, and, and Francois uh, uh, basically insists on the limitations of China's pretense or maybe our w- willingness to see China as... Uh, a new herald of the world order, a new leader in international cooperation. But there's a, there's a book which is more uh, complete on on this issue, which is Richard Haas' uh, latest book, A World on Disarray. And I was in particular interested by the way he comments on the need for a new approach to sovereignty, which is something Jeremy mentioned, uh, and and I think that that's a good beginning of. Trying to find a way to get out of the of the kind of conundrum where we are at uh, right now.
1: Okay. What about you, Jeremy? Um, I guess I'm not quite as focused as Manuel. I was reading this weekend a book called um, "The Rivers of London" uh, by Ben Aronovich, which is a which is a crime novel, sort of about a a unit in the Metropolitan Police Department, which uses. Uh, supernatural powers to investigate supernatural crimes within uh, London. It's got a lot of uh, local uh, London colour. It's a pretty strange story and it sort of occurred to me in the course of all of the police actions this weekend in London that they really do need a supernatural unit.
0: So my recommendation is something which might be useful for people who are trying to get inside Donald Trump's brain and understand the thinking which led him to walk away from the Paris Treaty. And it comes from the Journal of American Affairs, which some of you might remember from an earlier podcast when I spoke to Julius Crine about the intellectual foundations of Trumpism. And this article is written by Michael Anton, who is the Deputy Assistant for Strategic Communications on the National Security Council and is about America and the liberal international order. Michael Anton might not be a household name, but many households did read one of his most famous articles during the election campaign, which was called the Flight 93 election, which went viral. And he wrote that under the pseudonym of Publius Decius Moose. And we'll also put a link up to that, as well as to all the other recommendations on our website, which is www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. If you've enjoyed listening to us, please go straight to iTunes and write a review of their podcast. Give us a rating. And you can also tell your friends about it by writing on our Facebook page or on yours or tweeting about it. But in the meantime, from Manuel lefant Jeremy Shapiro and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Ulrike Franke and our editor is Pauline Gomi.